theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're going to explore today one of the most uh, famous stories in the Tanakh, and not only famous among Jews, but really extremely famous also among non-Jews, particularly that it's the first recorded and major decision in uh, legal jurisprudence that we have in human history. And thus, its significance, and it's uh, especially connected to one of the mitzvahs in Parshas Kiseitze. The background of the story is, in the book of Malachim, in the book of Kings, David HaMelech passes on. He is succeeded by his son, Shloima, King Solomon, who turns to Hashem and asks God for a lev shemeya. He wants to have wisdom. He wants to have the blessing of perceptiveness, discernment, so he should be able to judge the people justly and fairly. Hashem promises him this great wisdom and sense of uh, perception so he can lead his nation as a demonstration of the great chachma, of the great brilliance and wisdom and perceptiveness of the new king, the Tanakh goes on to describe a story that happens. And this is right in the beginning of the stories of Shloyma HaMelech's tenure, Malachim Bey's Perigimel, the second book of Kings, the third chapter. Let's take a look inside and read the story the way it's recorded in Sefer Malachim in the Navi. Two women who are described as Zainas, which what that means, some commentators say Zainas from the word Mizainas, meaning they had a hotel or a motel, they would feed people, they were chefs, or Zainas, literally promiscuous women. They both come to the king, to Shleiman, and they stand in front of him. One woman says, be adoni, please, my master. And listen to her words. Me, I, and this other woman were dwelling, are living in the same home. The I gave birth to a child in the home with her, together with her. She also gave birth to a child. I gave birth first. Three days after I had a baby, this woman, the second woman, also gave birth. We're together. Nobody else is with us in the house. Besides us two, we are the only two people in this home. There's nobody else. Meaning, there's no testimony, no witnesses, nobody who observed, nobody there. At night, the son of this woman, 
who gave birth after me died. How? She slept on him. She lay on him. And as a result of that, he passed on. So this woman who inadvertently killed her son stands up in the middle of the night. And she takes my son from me. Your maidservant was sleeping. I didn't protest. I didn't fight. I was asleep together with my baby. And she places my son in her bosom. Her dead child, she places in my bosom, is laying now in my bosom. The woman tells Shlaima Melech, this is an elaborate story. I wake up in the morning to nurse my son. I'm glad he didn't wake her up in the middle of the night. And he's gone, he's dead. I contemplate, I look into him as boinen, as boinenus. I, I view him in the morning, it's light. Remember, this is before Edison's days, no lamp, but now it's in the morning, I can see him. Which, by the way, it may stand corrected, maybe he woke up in the middle of the night to nurse, <laughs> but now in the morning she can see. Oh, actually, he wasn't waking up, he was dead. But in the morning she wakes up to nurse her son, she looks at him. It's not my son whom I gave birth to, it's the other boy. This is her story. So therefore, what is she saying? That living child that the other woman claims is hers is really mine. And the dead child that I have is really hers. She made a switch. This is woman number one. Woman number two, the other woman who's standing in front of Shloyme, says, Loi, that's not the case. She doesn't have a story. She just says a fact. My son is the live one, and your child, your son is the one that died. The other woman, the first woman who spoke first says, Loi, that's not true. Your son is the dead one, my son is the living one, and you made a switch when you saw that you killed your child. They both speak before the king, implying that the conversation continued. The debate continued. The arguments went back and forth. We don't have recorded what else they said. But obviously they continue speaking to the king. The king, Shloyme, says, This one says, This is my child, the living one. Your, one is, your child is dead. This is my child, the living one. And the Yisai the other one, says, No, your son is dead, my son is alive. Vayoymer HaMelech, says the king, Kuli Cherev, bring me a sword, Vayaviyu HaCherev Lifnei HaMelech. They bring the sword before the king. Vayoymer HaMelech, says the king, Gizru HaSayelet HaChai L'Shnaya, Cut the living child into two, Utnu HaSachetzi L'Achaz, V'Sachetzi L'Achaz. Half the child you give to one woman, Half the child you give to another woman. We make a split, there's a dispute about who owns the child. The first woman says, it's mine. He was abducted, he was kidnapped by the other woman. The other woman says, no, it's mine, Yours, mine is alive, yours is dead. We make a split. Huh? Like a talus, the first Mishnah, Baba Metziah, Shnayim, Eichz, and Betalus. Zayimer, Animetziah, this is Kula Shali. Zayimer, Kula Shali. It's all, Zayimer, Kula Shali, Zayimer, Kula Shali. You say it's yours, I say it's mine, it's a cloak. 
What do we do? What does the Mishnah say? Yachlaika, you split it. So Shloyma is now holding the sword. He didn't tell anybody to do it. He said, bring me the sword. They bring him the sword. He now has the sword and he says, this is what you should do now. The woman whose son is alive tells the king, because her compassion is aroused on her child who is about to be murdered. She says, Please, my master, Give the living child to her, to the other woman. Don't kill the boy. The other woman says, Let the boy not be to me. Let the boy also not belong to you. Let's cut the child, which would of course kill the child. Nobody would be able to claim the child. So one woman who's really, the Pasuk says, the one who is the mother of the living child who had the child, says give away the, woman, give away the child to the other woman who claims that it was his and she kidnapped him. But the other woman says, no, let's both not have it. You, I don't have it, you don't have it, we cut the child. Vayan Amelech Shloimer responds, Vayoimer, Tnu la esayalud hachai vahamis loisimisu hi imai. Give her, ostensibly her, the woman who said, don't kill him, give him away. Give him the living child, don't kill him. She is the mother. Vayishmu kol Yisrael esamishpata sheshafat hamelech vayirim pnei hamelech. The entire nation heard the verdict of the king and they were in awe of him. Kiro, Why? They saw They saw this is not just a regular king, there is the wisdom of Hashem in him to be able to know how to do justice. And this concludes the story of the two women and the baby. When we think of Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Meshuga. Very good, very good. Which is what I want to begin to ask. We read this story. This story everybody knows. We have heard it growing up. As I said, this is a world-renowned story. This is the story of Chachma Shlom And we see this is what really validated his presence, his wisdom, his brilliance, and ultimately becomes known as the wisest man, the smartest man who lived because of this unique blessing that God gives him. But let's first think about the story, and let me ask what they call the Yiddish Haklotzkasha. A very simple question. I want to go into the mind of the woman who Shleim HaMelech assumed lied. The woman who claimed that her living child was taken from her and she was given a dead child which is really not hers because the other woman took it when she realized that she slept on her child and choked him to death. She comes and she's screaming that the living child is hers. Why? She knows. She knows whose child is dead or alive because if she's lying, she did it. She is the one who knows it, right? She's claiming that the other person did the switch because she saw it's not really her child, but she would know that she's dishonest. Obviously, like every liar, you usually know when you're lying. There's no question that she would know. And yet, she creates the lie. Why? Because she wants the child. 
And think about this. It's not her child, but she wants a child, which means she's going to raise him, she's going to nurse him, she's going to feed him, she's going to support him, and do what a mother does for a child. Why is she doing this if it's a lie? It's another woman's child. Because she really wants the child. It takes a lot of miseris nefesh. I don't have to explain it to the mother sitting here, and even to some of the fathers sitting here. It takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a mother's unwavering and absolute, you agree? Absolute self-sacrifice to raise a child. Even your own child, it's not so easy with. <laughs> even your own child. Another child, as is quite well known, enhances the challenge profoundly for obvious reasons. And yet, she wants this child. And she's ready to raise him. Now let's think about what happens. Shlaima HaMelech says, cut the child into two. The real mother, the one who Shlaima HaMelech is convinced is the real mother, screams says, forget the case. Give away the child. Give it to her. Don't kill. Don't kill. Give her the child. What should happen right now? If you were that woman, what should you do? Huh? <laughs> better, better. What should you do? Say, ah, Mechaya. <laughs> Wonderful. Give me my child. Let me take the child. Great. She said, over. No pressing charges, no issues. Let it, don't kill the child. Take the child. You got it. And you could turn to Shloyma and say, you know, this woman is a kidnapper, but she's not a murderer. <laughs> she's a kidnapper. She's a liar. She abducted my child, but she's not a retzayach. She's not a murderer. This her conscience would not allow her to do. When she saw the kid is about to be murdered, she says, no, no, no. I'm giving him up. You just got what you wanted on a golden platter. Take the baby and run. What does she do? Instead... She says, cut the child. But one second. Not only did you not do the logical thing. You got what you want to take the child and run. Now you're demonstrating how illogical, how narcissistic, how mashuga you really are, and absolutely careless about the fate of the child. And this is a mother. You're saying you're the real mother, and you're ready to have your child slain, and the fake mother just said, she's ready to give up the child, they shouldn't die, as one of the Mepharshim puts it, I'm soon going to mention the names, he says, this is a Isha Meshugas, she's demonstrating that she's a Meshugana, and more than that, she's demonstrating that she's a blood, cold-blooded human being, completely careless, she completely doesn't care, and by that, she's giving herself in. She's demonstrating she doesn't care, especially after the other woman. Woman displayed compassion. And that's exactly what happens. Sulaiman Melech says, she's not the mother. The other one is the mother. Now you might say she was stupid. But she arranged this whole elaborate story. She really thought this out. I mean, she came with a gansa mice, exactly what happened, how the baby died, what happened. She was thinking this through. It wasn't just an instinctive decision of a few seconds. And then... This situation happens. She gets what she wants on a golden platter. Not only does she not take it, she ruins the whole Misa by saying something completely illogical, completely immoral, completely insensitive, and gives herself in. Issue number one. But now I go to the second issue. Let's put ourselves for a moment, if we can, in the shoes of Shleim HaMelech. You're Shleim HaMelech, you're sitting on your throne, and you have this uh, maternity... Uh, 
court case, I guess we can call it. And you have this situation. What was Shloimeh thinking when he says, cut his child? There's a question who this baby belongs to. Two women, each one claims she is the mother. I guess they were not doing DNA testing, and there was no way to uh, determine the truth through uh, scientific methods, as perhaps they would be able to do today. You have to decide who's the mother. So what does Shloimeh say? He says, let's cut the child. What was he thinking? If you were Shloimeh, would you expect one of the women to say, yeah, cut the child? Who would say that? I mean, think, you're having a case with somebody about a child. Unfortunately, custody questions happen every single day. From heavy, heavy fights. It's not exactly this story, but the concept is that who gets the child? This happens every single day. A judge would say, we're cutting the child in two. Somebody says, yeah, a father, a mother. Even if they're having a legal bitter dispute, is this what Shloimeh really expected to happen? I would never expect somebody to say this. But let's think furthermore. If I was Shloimeh, you were Shloimeh, what would have Shloimeh done if the woman who he claimed at the end was lying would have done something a little different? She would have said exactly what I suggested she should say. The other woman is ready to give up the child. She doesn't want the child murder. Let me take it. So Shloima Malik would have done what? Taken the child and giving it to this woman. Because both women are saying, give it to this woman. So basically what would have happened? He would have rewarded the liar with a child that didn't belong to her. So the woman who was lying would get the child because the real mother is giving away the child. How does Shloima Malik know? That one woman is going to say something that Appa, so outrageous, so ridiculous, so insensitive, so immoral. How did he know this? And how could you rely on this? That this is going to happen, she's going to behave completely in an insane way, and as a result of that you'll be able to prove that she's the wrong mother. Okay. 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 Very good. Very good. And thus. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, interesting. You hear? If Yosef says if a woman could stoop down to steal somebody's baby, she's capable of doing anything. And he really expects and anticipates such a response. Would you? You don't see a distinction? I'm just wondering. <laughs> You're not Shloim HaMalach, okay. <laughs> it doesn't say how long after. Maybe a few days, maybe a day after, maybe a few months. It doesn't say. We don't know. We know that they both came and they recently had a baby. How long? It doesn't say. I want to go another, I want to ask another question. 
This is a question raised. By a famous sefer known as Akedas Yitzchak. The Baal HaKedah was written by Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, who lived in Spain. He was one of the Jews who was exiled from Spain in 1492. He was a great commentator, a great mystic. His commentary, Akedas Yitzchak, is very well known. And he raises this question. He says, where did Shloyme get this idea of splitting a baby? So he brings the Mishnah Baba Metziah. Two people are holding on to a cloak. Bezdin doesn't know what to say. Whose is it? What do you do? So you say, He says, one second. This is completely irrelevant to our situation. They're both holding on to the cloak. I have no logical reason to reward the cloak to this one more than to this one. I can even assume, as Toysfus makes clear over there, actually, but Metziah Davbeis, that they're both even saying the truth, they're both even right, not necessarily even one is a liar. So I say, Yachloiku, split it. Either cut it into two, sell it, split the money. Here, there's a muchzuk. There's a woman who has a baby. We have a principle in all of Allah, and it's very logical. I come over to you, I say, Give me the shirt. I take you to the rabbi. He says, Yachloiku? Give me your iPhone. Yachloiku? Give me your car. Give me your house. Yachloiku? Yachloiku? Nobody could live anymore. Somebody's holding a baby. You take the baby. It's mine. You kidnapped it last night. Yachloiku? A mother's holding a baby. Even the woman who says that she it was kidnapped says the other woman is holding the living baby. She just says, it's mine. It's not hers, it's mine. Where does he get this idea of Yechloiku and Alocha? This is what Akedah asks. Furthermore, Shloim HaMelech does himself in. Because before the verdict, he repeats their arguments. And what does he say? Shloim HaMelech says in, Pasuk Chavgim of Ayomer HaMelech, Zoysay Meres, Zeh B'ni Hachai. Zeh means this one. What's this one? This one that I'm holding. But this is it. As the Gemara says in Tainus, this is what I'm holding. Shleimah himself says that there's one woman holding a baby and saying, and a moment later, he contradicts himself. Instead of saying, maybe you're right, but you know what? She has the baby, there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry, go bring proof that it's your baby. Fine. If it would at least look like you, doesn't probably didn't even look like her. I can't do anything. Instead, he says, Yachloiku. But now I ask maybe the biggest question. How does a king say such a verdict? Who gives such a psak din? Let's say he could find a comparison to Baba Metziah. Yachloiku with money? Has to do with Yachloiku with a child? Whoever heard that you split somebody, something, somebody living? In fact, in Medrash, we have a tradition of what happened when Shleim HaMelech gave this verdict. What happened in the palace? What type of text messages went around Israel at the time? You heard what the king is up to. So it was obviously the national conversation on all the WhatsApp groups, or as you put it, that went everywhere, whatever the method was. What was the Olam saying? So look what the Medrash says. Says the Medrash... To, Medrash Tehillim Mizmer Ayim Beis. Kivan Sheshama Melech Kain Omar Gizru Esayelet. The king said, Cut the child. Hischil Pivnei Veya Bechachma. 
His mouth started to spew wisdom. Omar, this is what Shlomo says. Hashem knew that this court case will be brought before me. That's why every person was created with peers. Now you understand why the Rebbeinu Shalom created people with two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, two legs, and two feet. So I should be able to split them up. One mother gets one eye, the other one, the other eye, nostril, one leg. One of the Tanoim, Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Loi, said, listen to this. If I was standing there in the palace, I would take big bundles of wool and place it on his neck of Shloyme to choke him. It's not enough one tragedy. One child, Nebuch, died in the middle of the night. You're now going to kill a second child? I would say, we have a king here. We have a murderer here in the palace. He needs to be assassinated. He says, if I was in the palace, this is going to be our king? He had a chosh of a father, David Melech, but this kid, with the, the way he's going to lead this nation, nobody's going to survive. A tragedy happens, he says, let's kill the second child. What's going on? When all of his servants, all the Mesharsim in the palace saw what's going on, he's asking for the sword. They said that Pasuk in Kohelas, Perik Yud, Woe unto a country whose king is a baby. That's what we have here. We have a 12-year-old baby who's making decisions on life and death and is going to be cute and split up babies to give them to two mothers. Woe to our nation, this is our king. We understand what they're saying. You split a child. Yeah, you wanted to say something? Right, right, right. Of course. Of course, it's a monetary object, even if you could split it. He dealing with it. The comparison seems outlandish. It doesn't even begin. It's not like, not, it's not a debatable issue. Listen, if he was using the Urim Vitumim, then there's no Chachma. <laughs> then there's no Chachma. Chachma Salakim. But it's trying to bring out that they're in awe of him because the Chachma of Hashem is in him. All Chachma comes from Hashem. He has a special gift of perception and wisdom. If he's just giving over a verdict from heaven, right? So essentially he's just a conduit. There's no Chachma in Shloyme. It seems like Shloyme went through some process here to the point that people are in awe of him, which may even be the largest question, and that is, is it such an impressive story? I'm just wondering. It's such an impressive story. It's an interesting story. It's so impressive. If you hear this story about somebody, you're convinced that Mamish Chachma Salakim Bekerboy, I would say, ostensibly, at first glance, his verdict seems quite absurd. 
There was no way he could have anticipated that the other woman would behave so irrationally. He had mazel. He had mazel that the other woman went crazy. She didn't take what she had to take that morning. She said something completely stupid. And as a result of that, she gave herself in completely inconsistent with what she was trying to do. Is this chachma or is this mazel? It's the dream of every judge that one of the plaintiff or the defendant should say something so ridiculous, so absurd, so immoral, so insane, fine. But you can't, you can't uh, build your career on this. I want to tell you about Misa. This is a story that happened in my family. This is not a Misa, this is a story of my mother's, my mother's El and we know the Maisa and the Mishpacha. His name was Rebavram Schwartz. Rebavram Schwartz. He was a Rav in Baku. That's near the Caspian Sea. And uh, he was not only a Rav, he was a Klugeid, as they say. He was a very wise, perceptive human being. And this is a Maisa Shahaya. In those days when you did the laundry, you didn't have a dryer. You took the laundry and you had a string outside of the house and you hung the laundry like they still do in some places in Yerushalayim and in Bnei Brak, and even once in a while in the old bungalow colonies, before they're being upgraded to uh, wonderful homes. Yeah, you have the string and you hang, you hang the, you hang the kvisa, you hang the, the wash there, so it should dry up. But here I am, there were two women who were neighbors. So naturally, they often use the same string to hang that which they cleaned, what they washed. This is Russia. South, but Russia gets cold, gets very cold. A winter, can, the degrees uh, can fall very low, below, 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 many degrees below zero. And there was a blanket, a warm, nice, comfortable, cozy blanket, which was unique. It was a rarity and it was very special and very necessary. And one of the women washed the blanket and put it to hang. The the neighbor sees a nice blanket hanging. A very nice blanket hanging. And she takes a liking to it. (laughs) So what happens? She calls the other woman, the owner, to the Rav, Rebav Ram Schwartz, my my mother's Altezeide, and uh, says... I washed my blanket, I put it out to hang, and my neighbor stole the blanket. They came to him in the evening, because that's when you take in the laundry, you keep it outside, but during the daytime the sun should dry, this was evening. Took it in, she said, you know what, let me get the blanket. He looks at them, what do you say? I don't know what she's talking about, it's my blanket, I took it, I hung it up. No, it's my blanket, she stole it. It's very easy to steal, it's right there, outside. He listens to this one, he listens to this one, he listens to this one. He didn't say, Yachlaiko. <laughs> I'll tell you what he said. He looked at them, he said, you know, it's nighttime. it's hard to see. Come back in the morning, the sun will be shining, we'll go outside, like you make a bdike in halacha. <laughs> we'll look at it under the sun, and maybe one of you will discover that it's not really your blanket because you will see some nuances that you didn't see last night and you'll be making a mistake. 
Okay, very gishmak. But leave the blanket with me, because the blanket was brought to him. That was the question. Leave the blanket with me. Tomorrow morning you look. The next morning, he goes into his bedroom. He also had a blanket. He had a blanket. His wife had a beautiful blanket that was similar to this blanket. He takes out that blanket. He shows it to the woman who he thought might have been the honest woman. Shows her the blanket and says, now look again at this blanket. Is it yours? The woman says, oy, 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 ich bet I'm so sorry, it's not mine. It's not mine, I take it back, I apologize. He goes to the other woman. You see? Ganev, Ganev. Of course it's my blanket. He says, look, well, it's your blanket. He says, of course, it's mine. I told you yesterday, it's mine. The other woman lied. Okay, she made a mistake. But I accept her apology. Give me my blanket. Okay. So he turns to this woman who's claiming it's hers. He says, so this is for sure yours. Yeah, no question. Look, look, look. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Give it to me. Okay. Let's put it on the side. He now goes back and he takes out the real blanket. Right? He goes to the woman who just claimed that the other blanket is hers. What about this? No, that's my blanket. She can't change anymore. He now goes to the first woman. He says, what about this? She looks. This is mine. This is mine. He says, okay, so this is yours. And nobody argues with you, right? No. So you take your blanket and go home. Now you'll come to a dentator with my wife. Because my wife claims that it's her blanket. This is a maise Not very long ago. I hear the chachma. I hear the chachma. I would say it's a, a clever man. Wise, perceptive, a little shrewd. He did what he had to do to prove that somebody lied and stole a blanket. But he wasn't doing this with a living child. He didn't say to cut the blanket, but certainly not with a living child to cut the child. I want to ask one more question. Shloima Melech finishes the whole Maisa, Pasuk Chavzayin. He says, give her the living child, don't kill him. He Imoy, she's his mother. We're convinced that we know who the mother is. We really know for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. When you say he ima, it means you mamish. You could say, I assume. I speculate. There's a chance, maybe not. Maybe the other woman was clever and she understood. You don't say kill a child. If you want to get the child, you say keep the child alive. Maybe she had mazel the other woman. Maybe her nerves went crazy, the real mother, and they broke down and she said something crazy. Kill the child, leave me alone, I can't deal with this. But Shloyme says he ima. How did he for sure know he ima? I understand he speculated, he guessed, he assumed, he knew for sure he ima. So, uh, so the Gemara discusses this. There's a Gemara. There's a Gemara, take a look, side two, Masech Demachis, Amr Ebelazar, Begimel Mekoymes, Ifiru HaKadosh, Bebez Dinah Shalshem, Bez Dinah Shashmolar, Masi Bebez Dinah Shalshloim. Three courts had divine inspiration. Shame, Shmuel, Shloim. Based in the Shloim, the Ksivayana, Melech, Vayem, Tnula, Sayel, the Chayvo, Hamis, Loim, Simisu, Kihi, my flag, the Gemara, Minoyada. How does he know? Dilme, Irume, Miyarme, maybe she's being deceptive. This is what the Gemara asks. Makas, Chav, Gimel. 
And for the Gemara, Yotzes Baskel V'yomra, Hiyimai. Hiyimai is not the words of Shloimeh. Hiyimai is a voice from heaven. Shloimeh said, give her the baby. Hashem says, Hiyimai. That's what the Gemara says. Amarava Mimai, how do you know? Who said? Shloimeh Nami Midahokamarachamsa there was no baskel. Shloimeh logically said, one has compassion, one doesn't have rachmanus. Hakamarachim says, she has compassion. The other one doesn't. The other one says, That's why he said, The Gemara says, you're right, Gemara. It's a tradition that there was Ruach HaKadosh. There's no proof from this story. There's a tradition that there was Ruach HaKadosh in the best. Gemara means it's a tradition. We have a tradition. There's no proof from the words, We have an interesting thing. In other words... We're assuming Shloyma Amalek is using his logic. This is in response to your question about Urim Vitumim. And yet, he could say for sure, He Imoy. It's the mother. Rashi on the Pasik Taka says, He Imoy, there was a Baskal. Rashi was perturbed by this question. How can he know for sure He Imoy? Why is it even relevant? But more importantly, how does he know for sure? Rashi says there was a Baskal. Rava asks a question. Maybe he knew. The real question is, he can assume, can he know for sure he ima? You have to say he ima, probably she's the mother. The Rambam says in Hilchis Sanhedrin, Perik Chafal of Halachetes. It's fascinating that this story made it into Halacha. The judge has to listen to their complaints. And then repeat their arguments. We learn it from Shloim HaMelech. He hears the arguments and he goes through them. He reviews them, he repeats them. In his heart, he has to justify and reach a verdict and then he articulates it. But Shloim repeats the arguments. He repeats what they're saying. And from here we learn this is how every court case has to happen. Has to happen with the diet. Comes the Akeda, I mentioned before the Akeda, the Akeda is Yitzchak Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, who asks the question, where did Shloyme get the idea of cutting a child? This Hamaitzi Mechaveri Olavaraya. Take a look in the Akeda, on the bottom of page, side one, Sefer Akeda, Yitzchak Shar Lamed Vav. Shar Lamed Vav. It's a long shtickle, I'm not going to read the whole shtickle, everybody could read it on their own. It's a little bit of a hard language the Akeda has. But I want to read to you a few lines. It's also a very beautiful uh, way he puts it. Take a look on line 3 from the source, Sefer HaKedus Yitzchak, he says, Their Hebrew was very interesting. It's worthwhile to reflect. Since the object we're dealing with, the child, it does not lend himself to be split. Since you can't split a child, the issue of chazaka should have determined the truth. One is holding the baby. Instead, he contradicts himself. Since one woman is holding on to the child, since 
So he's actually defending her when he says, this one is saying, When you say Zeh, it means the one that I am holding. So the other woman, the plaintiff, has to prove that she is the mother so she can extract the baby. You only say Yachloiku if they're both Muchzik in it. Identically. Not when there's a Chazaka. One of the women or one of the people standing there could have easily argued with him. In his own, in his own conclusion of the argument, he's contradicting himself. He says, And then he says Yachloiku. And Akeda goes on to elaborate on his question. What's his answer? His answer was that Shleimah HaMelech had here two opposing perspectives. On one hand, there is Chazaka. There's a woman holding on to a baby. That's very strong. This is my jacket. You want to take it, you have to prove it. You can't just say Yachloiku, especially a living child. On the other hand, Shleimah HaMelech is thinking to himself, why would a woman want to raise a child who is not her, doesn't belong to her, which requires tremendous mysterious nefesh, especially if we assume zoinus means literally zoinus, so there's not even so much attachment to the child. Here you're dealing with a very promiscuous person, and yet she is ready to take this child as her own and raise the child. So the Akedah says... Why does she need all this amal via gear rabba, tremendous toil, and she knows it's not even her child? And this is what gives Shloyma HaMelech the sense that from a perspective of justice, there are two equal arguments. There's Chazaka, but Chazaka is counterbalanced by another very strong argument that if she's a liar, why would she want a child that doesn't belong to her? This is the Akedah's perspective. Take a look in his words. Three lines from the bottom, two lines from the bottom. That's why he felt both arguments had an identical power. These are his words. This is what he says. This one says, This is the argument of Chazoka. But the other one says, Your child is dead. Mine is alive. And this is a time that the mouth could not say, If it's not honest to say, Your child is the dead one, and my child is the living one, if the truth is the other way around. That it's not that way. You're going to claim that your child is the living one when it's not your child and you're going to have to raise him. And because of this, he felt there is a din chalukah here. Take a sword. And that's why he repeats it. Of course, from here you learn what Shloim HaMelech was thinking, that it is Yachloiku because there's two tainas that are very, uh, very powerful. And because of that, he comes and says, Yachloiku. But if this is the case, we have a very strong question on the Akedah. Was he serious? <laughs> he now says it's like a talus in the sense that you have something as strong as Shnayim Why? 
Because a woman would logically not want to raise a child that doesn't belong to her. So that's why you'll really say Yachlaiku on a living organism? Huh? That would apply to both of them, exactly. And the one who's holding is still added on top. That's true. That's true. Right, that's true, of course. You're saying plus Chazaka. You're saying Chazaka plus. In a chanami. In a chanami. You're right. So you're asking, so what's Bechal this This is stronger. Right. But apparently he holds that it's so absurd that a woman should say this, that it's, it's mamish. <laughs> it's so powerful. Which of course leaves you in doubt because both are saying that. But in other words, it's such a powerful taina that even Chazaka can't completely eliminate it. But what is Yechloiku going to help? What is he thinking? And as we said before, does he know what the other woman is going to say? Now, I think when one reads the story quite straight for, straightforwardly, one sees before anything else that Shlai Mahamelech already saw she was lying. Where do you see she was lying in the story? The way she told the story, you see somebody saying a lie here. No question. Huh? What? No, no. The woman who says the whole story that her child was abducted in the middle of the night by the other woman says something that's clearly a lie. Huh? So, what's the lie? How does she know what? She saw in the morning that it wasn't her baby. Oh, Tazai. Oh, Tazai. She tells Shlaima Melech that she knows how the baby died. The other woman lay on her baby, so she killed her by mistake. But then she says, I was sleeping. You were sleeping. So how do you know? Maybe the baby died another way. There's different ways that children die, Rahman al-Islam. This crib death. Maybe a snake bit him. Maybe he choked. Maybe he had an illness. How do you know for sure? This is one option. So if she would have said, I was at bed, I couldn't fall asleep, I was having a hard night, my baby was driving me crazy, I take a look at the other woman, I see she rolls over, sure enough I see this dark shadow approaching my bed, there's a switch. I was dazing off, okay, her. But she gives herself away when she tells Shloyma Melech, what does she say? Your maidservant was asleep the whole time in the morning. I wake up to nurse and then I see Agansamaisa. So how do you know how the baby died? So presumably Shloyma Melech heard this. You didn't chapzich on this. Shloyma Melech heard this. And because he heard it, he already. Still, there is a lie here. This doesn't mean the story didn't happen. But it means that this woman is not saying the full truth. She is already putting in facts that she's not sure about. The other woman characteristically doesn't say stories. The other woman doesn't have a story. She says, That's it she says. B'ni hachai. That's it, she says. What do they tell you in court? If your argument is weak, yell, right? If you're right, fill your mouth with water. Don't speak a lot. She doesn't speak. She says, this is my child. He's alive. That's it, she says. 
Shlaim HaMelech hears this. He hears one more thing. Take a look in Pasuk Chavbeis. One woman says, Bnei Achayu, Bnei Chameis. The other woman says, Bnei Chameis, Bnei Achayu. You see the difference? One begins by saying, my child is living, yours is dead. The other one says, yours is dead, mine is alive. So Shlomo hears three things. First of all, he hears an utter lie. She knows how the baby died. She doesn't know if she was asleep. Number two, a Navi, she's not. Number two, the other woman doesn't have a story. The other woman just says, it's my child, it's alive. Third, the order changes. And the Malbim picks up on this. Take a look at the Malbim. The Malbim on side two. This is a klal in language. In, in, in verbiage. Communication. You mention first the main point, and then the secondary points. One woman, the main focus is my child is alive. Yes, there's a second child who's dead. That happens to be your child automatically. For the other woman whose child is really the dead one, the first thing she has to say, no, you have the dead child. First we have to get rid of that. And then my child is living. Shlaime hears this. If Shlaime hears this, perhaps he sees there's a lie. Plus he has a few added details. He thinks, you know what, she is the mother. So then why does he have to cut the baby in two? Why does he have to bring the sword? Perhaps he just wants to demonstrate it. But then here we have the bigger question. If Shloim HaMelech already assumed who was the honest one and who was the liar, by bringing the sword, the story could have developed in a fashion that would have actually created the opposite of justice. The destruction of justice. The wrong woman would have ended up with a baby. I found three svarim that tell this story in a completely different fashion. I don't think each, any one of them saw the other one. They say a vart, they say an old vart, some say it from the mirror of Shishiva, of Shmuel Birenboim, but from others, the vart is a geshmaka vart. One of the litvish of Shishivas gave a shir. At the end, you know, one of the bachrim comes over to him, I found it. The Vartish Shindah. You know, it's here already. <laughs> Which of course was his way of saying, it's not original. It's not original, right? So he tells him, he says, listen, let me tell you a klal in life. When you're driving on the main highway, on the main road, you're going to meet other cars. But if you're driving on some fahakta dirt road, where there's barely a path, and you have to make your own path, because there's no path, it doesn't make sense to go that way, there you'll never find other cars. I'm a gate off in Gleichenweg, you'll find other people will say the same thing, because this is the Gleichenweg, Derech HaMelech. But if you go in a crooked path, then you'll remain an original forever. Nobody's going to say that. Three people, two Rishonim, which is big, and one Acherim. The first is Rabbeinu Menachem HaMeiri. 
The Me'iri was one of the great commentators of Gemara who lived in the 1200s in Provence in southern France. It's interesting, and in his life, he was almost barely known, but his commentary on Gemara, after it was discovered, is an absolute classic. The clarity and the thoroughness made it a, a, a gem in what they call Talmudic literature. The Me'iri has a little shtickle, a paragraph, in Mesechta Yevamas, Daf Yud Zayin Amit Beis. Where almost parenthetically, he gives his interpretation to the story. Another Yishin was a man named Rabbi Yeshua Ibn Shuab. He was from Spain. The Me'iri was from France. Shuab was from Spain. He was a student of the Rajbah. Rabbi Nushleimah ben Aderis, also from Spain. He was a friend of the Ritva, also from Spain. He lived also a little later than the Miri. He lived around 1300. A contemporary of the Miri. He has a safer drashus alatayra. I saw him parshus mishpatim. He has a few lines where he explains the story exactly like the Miri. They were contemporaries, friends, exactly the same way. A few centuries later, there was a famous Rav in Poland. He wrote a safer called Yovin Shmua. He wrote many Svarim, wrote a sefer called Shemen Rekeach, Kuntris Hachazokis. His name was Rebelozer Lev. Rebelozer Lev. Rebelozer Lev. Rebelozer of the city of Pilts. He passed away in the year Tovkov Tzadik Zion. He's closer to our generations, Tovkov Tzadik Zion, which means he passed away in 18, 1837. He wrote a sefer Yovin Shmua. On Parshish Kiseitze, he has a whole long... The other, the Rishonim write it in five, six lines. He gives three pages of his explanation. The whole thing, what the Me'iri and Ibn Shu'ab says without quoting them, I don't know if he saw them. Because they're quite farvarfin, you know, they're not like uh, common, frequent, uh, uh, it's not Svarim that you would see every day. But he gives a whole explanation. A few things differ in some dramatic differences, but the guy in the Mahalach is the same. And they all base it, on a fascinating medrash. The medrash is bothered why a woman would want a child that doesn't belong to her. And even if you do, why do you have to abduct? There's people who don't, people adopt. There's people who don't want to raise their children. Go find a child. She wants to abduct. She has to kidnap. Why do something illegal when you could do it legal? Some people have that thing. If you could do it illegally, you have to do it that way. But this is a very serious issue. This seemingly is what's bothering the Medrash. So there's a fascinating Medrash. Says the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah Shir Hashirim, Parsha Aleph Piskeyud, you have this Medrash Rabbah in Kohelas and in other places. Os who were they? Rabbanan Amri Yevomus Hoyu. They were Yevomus, meaning there was an issue. If they wouldn't have a living child, their husbands died. If they don't have a child, they would have to engage in the mitzvah of Yibum, marry a brother-in-law, or get chalitz, as we'll see in a moment. This is why they want a baby, not stam, to have a baby, even if it's not my baby. If not, she has to marry a brother-in-law because her husband died childlessly because the child died. But then there's another medrash. Medrash Sheikher Toiv says, Kala v'chamoysa. This was a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Oh, it's not just us tavoyna shtayim nashim. It's not just two women. Chava and Leia. Sprintse and Voida. 
This is maybe Sprint Sandvaira, but it's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, which explains why they're in one home and where are the husbands. What happened? They had babies. Where did the husbands run away? They went to a Shia. Where'd they go? They went on vacation, they went skiing, they went on a hike, they went biking. Where are the husbands? And why are they in one house? Why is there nobody else there? Well, we all know that for generations, it was very common that a few generations lived together in one home, which actually had many advantages. Some people still have it. You find it once in a while. The child wasn't just raised by mommy and tati. The child was raised by the Baba and the Zayda and the Elta Baba and the Elta Zayda and the uncles and the aunts, which is something we're often missing today, but that's a separate subject. But you had generations living in one home. You had a Zayda and a Baba, and then the children, and then the grandchildren. This is such a situation. There was a Kala, and there was Chamoisa. That's what the Medrash says. Let's analyze this now. You have a mother-in-law. A woman married her husband. They had a son. They had a son. This son married a wife, his wife. They're living together in the same home. So you have a boy, a man, a young man with his parents. And his wife, the daughter-in-law, living with her father-in-law and mother-in-law. The mother-in-law is pregnant. The daughter-in-law is pregnant. They both have children. And sadly, their husbands have passed away. How do I know their husbands passed away? This is a Medrash and Shashim. They had a tradition, Yavamas. Yavamas needed Yibam. According to this, the whole story now is put in context of what happened what Shleim HaMelech's thinking was. What was the logic behind the sword? Where did people see such chachma? But for this, let's understand a few details about the mitzvah of Yibum. Some of you not long ago finished Masechta Yavamas. And if you learned it well and you even remember it, so you'll remember some of the details. But let's just go through swiftly a few details so we can understand the story. So take a look in Chumash, Parshas Kiseitze, says the Pasuk. Two brothers are sitting together, meaning they're both alive at the same time. One of them dies without a child. The widow can just go and marry another woman. The surviving brother of the deceased husband marries her. And as it says, The name of the man who died, who didn't have children, will not be blotted out from Israel, because his wife, the widow, will marry his brother, and the family will continue. As the Mekobolim write, that the child that will be born will be a Gilgal, will be a reincarnation of the first husband who died, and he will carry his name, and he will carry his legacy. And what if he doesn't want? He doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law. Or she doesn't want, as the halacha says. So then there's a process called chalitza, pasik tes. So there's a whole process called chalitza where the widow meets her brother-in-law who does not want to engage in a leveret marriage in Yibum, she removes his shoe off his feet, she spits, and the marriage, the zika, the relationship that the Torah obligates the brother-in-law to marry the sister-in-law under these unique and tragic circumstances is terminated, and they're both free to move on. 
she could marry whoever she wants, according to halacha. This is this relationship, what's called in halacha, the zika, the, the connection, is terminated as a result of chalitza. What's the secret behind removing the shoe and spitting? This is a fascinating sugya in Nigla and Halach and even more in Nister. What does removing of the shoe, removing of the shoe do? There's a famous Malbim in Rus who discusses the idea that the shoe is what allows us to be connected to the ground, the earth. You don't walk barefoot because you're going to hurt yourself on the sidewalk or on the rocks or get wet, or, or, or get hurt, or get scratched, etc. So the shoe is really the protective gear that allows us a relationship with the earth. So the shoe is what represents the soul's relationship with the body, and as a result of Yibum, the brother continues to live on through this marriage, but if he says, we don't want to do this, or she says, we don't have to do this, you remove the shoe, representing the fact that the soul does not have any more relationship with the earth. The brother's soul, the first brother's soul, so to speak, has to move on in the spiritual world. This is the Malbim's perspective. The Arizal explains it Kabbalistically in a different way, but that's really a separate discussion. Let's now understand what happens here. Let's understand now what happens here. What happens if a man dies? He doesn't have a son, but he has a grandson. His children passed away, but he has grandchildren. There's no Yibum. No need for Yibum. Why? The Gemara says, Vizera, Ainlaw, Ainlaw. If there's any descendant, any child, even if it's another next generation, there's no need for Yibam and there's no need for Chalitza. Halachically, she is free. There's no relationship that's still connecting her to any of the brothers in law. She could move on. Point number two about Yibam. Let's say the father and mother did have a child, but unfortunately the child passed away. And then the father passes away after that. He died childlessly because there's no child. There's a necessity for Yibam. Halacha number three, point number three. If the father passes away, his wife was pregnant, and she has a baby afterwards. Wonderful. The baby survives. So he died with a child, so there's no need for yibum. The problem is, what happens if the baby comes out stillborn? So then there's a need for yibum, because he died childlessly, he doesn't have a child. What happens if the baby survives for a few days, but dies within 30 days? So we have the Gemara in Perek HaChoyletz, Yivamas Daf Lamed Hey. This, because he died within 30 days, and therefore he has the status in Halacha of perhaps being a Neufel. So the way the Rambam puts it in Hilchis Yibum Ochlitza Perek Aleph, there may not be Yibum because it's a Suffolk, it's a doubt, maybe in some situations. But at least she needs Chalitza. She can't move on without Chalitza. In some situations, according to some, she may even need Yibum. If he's a Neufel, in other words, he couldn't survive 30 days, so it's like he died. This is a discussion. According to the Rambam, she needs Chalitza. What does it mean she needs Chalitza? She can't marry her brother-in-law, but she can just move on. She needs Chalitza because this child is perhaps considered a Neufel because he died within 30 days, even if the cause of death is unclear. And according to some, there are situations where she may even be able to do yibum because it's as though he died died uh, childlessly. Finally, the Pasuk says, I just read the Pasuk and you could see it, and this is a very important halach in this whole situation. Pasuk tests, kacha ye'asa le'ish asher lo'yivne es beis achiv. Chalitza can only be performed by an ish, meaning an adult, meaning a mitzvah bacher. A child cannot perform chalitza, which means if the husband died, and his brother is a baby, 
she's not going to marry a baby, nor she can get chalitza from a baby. She has to wait till he's 13 years old. Once he's 13, he could do chalitza, and the relationship is terminated. She's free to move on. These are the details. You have here in a house a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. They're living in the same home. Both had husbands, both died. The shver died, the father-in-law passed away. So there was a widow who lost both her husband and tragically lost also her son. This is of course reminiscent of the story of Rus. Right, the beginning of Rus, there's a woman, Naomi, who loses both of her husband, her husband Elimelech, and actually not one son, but two sons, Machlin and Kilian. Here, and two widows are left, three widows are left. Here, one son, one son, uh, one son was lost. I, I don't say this just parenthetically, according to the Arizal, says Kabbalistically, the two women who come to Shleim HaMelech are associated spiritually with Rus and Arpa. I hope at the end to say something about that if we have time, but just, I wanted to make mention of that. Now, a husband dies without children, there has to be Yibum. The widow has to marry the brother-in-law, right? The brother of her husband, or at least she has to get Chalitza, and then the relationship is, is, is gone. Let's now think about the mother-in-law, the older lady who had a baby. She lost her husband, and she had a child. But that child died. Perhaps. Perhaps. We don't know. We have a question. She doesn't have to lie. She has no problem. Why? Even if her son died, does she have an issue of Yibum? Why not? She has a grandson. The other baby is alive. So her son left a child. So her husband has a grandchild. Her husband died, but he has a grandchild. So Yibum for her is not a concern. So she has no incentive to lie in terms of Yibum. She could lie because she wants a baby that's not hers. She wants a baby. But in terms of Yibum, she has no incentive to lie. Ah, you'll say, what happened? If her son died before his father, she gave birth and then her father died. Or maybe even after, her fa- her, after his father, but he died within 30 days and therefore she needs Yibum Mechlitzah. But as we said, she has a grandson, her husband has a grandson, she's absolved. But let's now go to her daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law, the situation changes. Her daughter-in-law had a baby. If her daughter-in-law's baby survived, she doesn't need Yibum. Why doesn't she need Yibum? Because her husband left a child. What happened if her child is the one who died shortly after it was born? Certainly before the month was up. If he died before his father, first the baby died, then the father died, for sure she needs Yibum. He died childlessly. Even if the father died before the baby, let's say the child died during pregnant, the father died during pregnancy, and he was born without a father, but we're talking about a child who died within 30 days. If he dies within 30 days, he is considered a naifa. She would need Yibum, or at least, as the Rambam puts it, chalitza. She can't just go on. Because even if you say that Minatayra, the baby was born, there's no yibum. But still there's a halacha that she needs chalitza in order to be able to marry somebody else. Because the baby did not survive 30 days. So this daughter-in-law, if her baby died, would need yibum or chalitza. From whom? From whom? Who would be her brother-in-law? The new baby. The new baby. 
Her husband's mother just gave birth. Her mother-in-law just gave birth. So that new baby is her brother-in-law. So that's the new baby from whom she has to have chalitza. Chalitza needs to be done by an ish. That means she has to wait 13 years till he grows up. Till then, she's stuck. Perhaps she has invented a story that it's her baby who's really alive. And her mother-in-law abducted the baby from her because she wanted the court should establish the baby as hers, and then she needs no yibum. She, of course, needs no chalitza. Why? She has a baby. Her husband didn't die childlessly. Which would explain why she keeps on saying, Bnei chameis, ubni achai, yours is dead, and mine is alive. So she's saying two things. First of all, there's no possibility for yibum. And second of all, there's no halachic need for Yibum. There's no physical possibility for Yibum. Why? I don't have a brother-in-law. My husband's brother died. Bnei Chameis. My shvigar's son died. Besides that, there's no halachic need for Yibum. Bnei Achai. My husband never died childlessly. This explains very well the order. Just for clarification, the halacha is, Ki yeshvu achim yachdav. The only requirement of Yibum is when both brothers were alive at the same time. Meaning, if she is widowed, her husband died childlessly, but her husband never had a brother. Her mother-in-law gives birth after her husband passed away. So it's called Eishes Achiv Shaloi Hoya Ba'ilamai. It's the wife of a brother who was not... But Oilama, he never existed, he never lived with the other brother, there was no Yeshuachim Yachtov, she's absolved from Yibu. So this would mean that we're dealing with a situation that the husband of the daughter-in-law died after her mother-in-law's child was born. Because if the husband of the daughter-in-law died before the mother-in-law had a child, right, if her husband died, let's say, earlier in her pregnancy, and then the mother-in-law had a baby, it's not an issue. Why is it not an issue? Because it's Eishah Zachiv, Shaloi Hayabai When he died, he didn't have a brother alive. So therefore, it wouldn't be an issue. There would be no Yibum, even if her son really died. So you have to say that the younger husband, the husband of the younger woman, died after the Shvigers, the Shviger, the Shviger gave birth. Now, Shloima is watching all this. He understands this cheshben very well. He understands this is not only a question of who owns the child. This is a question of yibum and chalitza. Now, presumably he could recognize who is the mother-in-law and who is the daughter-in-law. That was probably known knowledge. Also the mother-in-law probably looks a little older. So he might know who's lying. The mother-in-law has no incentive to lie. The daughter-in-law has an incentive to lie. But... You can't make a verdict based on that. Maybe she's lying because she doesn't want to wait 13 years for chalitza. Maybe. But maybe not. <laughs> People don't always lie. Maybe it happens to be the truth. Maybe her mother-in-law did kidnap the child from her. We don't know. In other words, she wants the child not to get absolved from chalitza. She just wants the child because it's her child. And why does her mother-in-law want her child? Not because she needs it for yibum and chalitza. Because she wants her grandson. And maybe, in all likelihood, she doesn't trust her daughter-in-law to raise the child. 
It happens even the best situations. What does my daughter-in-law know about raising children? I saw a note that a daughter-in-law sent a mother-in-law, please stop mixing in and telling me how to raise my child. You did bad enough with the one I have to deal with. You're not the expert. But this mother-in-law disagrees. Bechlal, she doesn't like a daughter-in-law. We know about the Chamesh Noshem, Shesoy Noizu Ezu, in Yevamis and in many places. A mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law traditionally don't always have the most romantic and best of relationships. Present company, of course, excluded. Rus and Naomi were a unique situation. It's probably the first and last time in history where a daughter-in-law turns to her mother-in-law and says, Wherever you go, I'm not leaving you. I want you with me 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, telling me everything that I'm doing right and wrong. And so, maybe that's what she wants. Maybe she's even suspecting that her daughter-in-law killed her son. She doesn't trust her. So we're not sure it's about Ibn and Chalitza. Maybe for the daughter-in-law is right. On the other hand, she may be lying. So Shloyman now has to figure this out. How do you know this? So Shloyman understands a few thousand years before our friend Sigmund Freud came to the world, Shloyman HaMelech knew about something that we call today a Freudian slip. But we would call it a Salomonian slip. A Shloimelian slip, however you want to say it. Shloimah understands all of this and he has to do something to chap and figure out if what's going on here is Yibum and Chalitza. In other words, if what is determining the dispute is not a genuine conversation of somebody simply wanting the child because it's hers, the daughter-in-law really owns this, it owns it, it's her child, or it's about Yibum and Chalitza. He also understands one more thing. This daughter-in-law, they say in Yiddish, is nisht mamash She's not the most righteous person in town. Why? If, if she's lying. Why? Because we feel bad for her. She's going to have to wait 13 years. But she's really taking away somebody else's child just to do that. So even though we can empathize with her plight, it's a very, very criminal an immoral thing to do. Besides, of course, it's not really helping Klapeshmaya. The court thinks she has a child. God knows she doesn't have a child. If she has any relationship with real halacha, right? It's not just for showbiz. She's not really gaining anything because every moment she goes to another person, she marries another husband without having chalitza. It's a lav min She's not allowed to do it or at least but she's not allowed to do it. And because she's not allowed to do it, so therefore it's really only for showbiz that the court thinks that it's a situation that is perfectly fine because she has a baby, but she knows she doesn't have a baby. What does Shloy Mahamelech do? Shloy Mahamelech says, bring a sword and let's cut the baby in two. What happens now? If her mother-in-law's baby is dead, she has the best of both worlds. Why does she have the best of both worlds? First of all, there's no Yibam and there's no Chalitza. She doesn't have a brother-in-law who survived and therefore she could marry freely. She didn't kill the baby. Shloy Mahamelech killed the baby. 
what we call in halacha grama, meaning she did not do an act of murder. Shlomo Melech says this. One woman says, no, 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 don't do this, the mother-in-law, don't do this. Give away the baby, give away the baby. The daughter-in-law, the king is saying, get rid of the baby. She jumps on it. She says, Gamli, Gamloch, Lo Gzairu. Instinctively, she says, do it. What does she gain? No Yibu, no Chalitza. She doesn't have to raise a child. That's not hers. Only to be able to remarry. Why? Because there's no child to raise. Her child, Nebuch, died. The other child will be killed by Shleim HaMelech. No Yibum, no Chlitzen, no burden of raising any child. She jumps on it and she says, yeah, great idea. Shleim HaMelech understood that if he's going to offer this verdict instinctively, she's going to jump on it because this solves all of her problems in the most elegant way. And he knows that she's not the most righteous person because if she's a liar, she was ready to abduct a child and lie to God just in order to get rid of Yibum. And this is where he gets it. Because the moment he says, cut, this woman says, yeah. Because for her, it's much better. It's much greater. He understands immediately what was motivating her was what? The issue of Yibum and Chalitza. So he says, she's not the real mother. She needs Yibam and Chalitza. I want to take it one step further. And that is a astonishing medrash that at first glance makes very, very little sense. It's a medrash in Parshas Lech Lecha. Take a look in the medrash. Medrash Pliya Parshas Lech Lecha. But let's first see the Me'iri inside. I didn't, I didn't put Rabbeinu Yeshua, Ibn Shub in the Yavin Shmuel, but I wanted to give you a sample of the Me'iri. And look at how he says it in a few lines. I'm going to read the Me'iri. This is what it says in the Medrash. The Me'iri asks our first question. The other woman should say, Thank you very much for giving me back my child and not wanting to kill the child you kidnapped. This was narishkeit, foolishness, this was absurdity, a pessy. It's a nar, you don't do this. The Miri is saying, and if she was really a fool, if she was so much sugar, he couldn't even know the truth. When somebody behaves in such an insane way, you can't even determine the truth. Or he may mean, how did even Shlomo think something is going to happen from this? How would he expect such an answer? This was a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. The husbands died without children, only these two. The husbands didn't have any other children, these were the only children. The daughter-in-law's child died. If it died within 30 days, the child is considered. A nephil, somebody who couldn't survive, 
and therefore she has to go into Yibum, leverit marriage, she has to wait for who? For her brother-in-law, the child of her daughter, of her mother-in-law. 13 years she's an aguna. 13 years she's stuck. Because there's no real marriage till he's 13, and there's no chalitza till he's 13. I mean, he could engage in marriage technically when he's nine, but there's no real marriage with a get and everything till he's 13. And chalitza, you can't do at all till 13. She exchanges the living with the, the dead with the living to say that it's her son. And now she's exempt from two angles. She has a son. Her husband didn't die childlessly, and she doesn't have a brother-in-law. Her husband did not leave any brothers. His baby brother just died. When Shloim says, cut the baby, she rejoiced. She didn't even realize how deeply she rejoiced. This was the most comfortable resolution. This was for her the optimum scenario, the optimal scenario. She would have to mutzizich to raise a child because she doesn't want to be alone for 13 years. And now, she doesn't have to raise a stranger's child. I mean, it's not completely a stranger, but she doesn't have to raise her mother-in-law's child, her brother-in-law, nor does she have to, ra- nor does she have to do chalitza. She gets married permissibly. And now, look, look, for God too, it's real. It's real. She's talking not being over an Avera. We hear Gishlaima being in that. Shlaima felt this. He left the son, the baby, with the, with the, with the mother-in-law. Comes the medrash plea in Parshas Lech Lecha. Imri na a medrash in Parshas Lech Lecha. They're going down to Egypt because there's a hunger in Eretz Yisrael. Avram tells Sarah, you're beautiful. What's going to happen is the Egyptians are going to abduct you. They're going to kill me. So that they can bring you to Paroi because of your beauty. Imri na Tell them you're my sister. If you're my sister, they don't have to kill me in order to bring you to Paroi. Instead, they could leave me alone. They'll reward me and you'll go to Paroi. Says the Medrash, Mikan Sheshoichatin From this Pasik, you learn a halacha that you slaughter an animal for a sick person on Shabbos. Where do you learn it from this Does What's going on? So the classic interpretation is, Avraham Avinu didn't rely on miracles. He didn't say God will help. He made a strategy. Asara will lie. She'll say she's his sister to save himself. A person is sick. You can't say it's Shabbos. God will help. You have to do what you have to do. But then why does the Medrash choose this particular instance? The Medrash says, It doesn't have to only with sick people. It has to do with every area of life. You don't rely on miracles. Your Rabbi Nishalayim wants you to follow the laws of nature. He works through Teva in most situations. That's the world he created. So someone is saying that the Chiddush here is that I am allowed to do an Aveira on Shabbos to save somebody else. In other words, to save another person, I am allowed to do. Sarah is going to say something untrue in order to save Avram Avinu because it's Bikoach Navar. Not just you're allowed to slaughter for yourself on Shabbos. I'm allowed to slaughter for you on Shabbos. But then the question is, 
I could light a fire for a choyl on Shabbos. I could cook for a choyl on Shabbos. I can write for a choyl on Shabbos. I can carry for a choyl on Shabbos. Shechita is one of the Lamates Malachis. But there's much more that you could do that you're not allowed to do usually on Shabbos. It's a very strange message. Mikan, Mikan. So I'm going to tell you a vort that the Lubavitcher Rebbe once shit in a letter to somebody, and I, achap, this is what he said. The medrash is precise, it's bediuk, it's accurate. Why? Based on Aran in Mesechta Yuma, the eighth chapter. The last source. There's a man ill, obviously dangerously ill. We're talking about an issue of life or death, Khalila. He needs meat. There's no meat. Go to the shoichit. Shech the cow. Salt it. Rinse it. Cook it. Prepare it. Give it to him. Don't say nachileinu nevela. There's a McDonald's store open right here. There's a lovely non-kosher butcher shop. They sell wonderful horse meat. Or they sell a regular steak of a cow, but it's not shechted, it's a nevela. Or they sell pork. They sell chazer. Go in and buy. What's the advantage? Says the Rana, you know what the advantage is? Givaldic advantage. To eat meat that wasn't shechted properly, what we call trefer meat, or even of a non-kosher animal, what genre does it fall into? It's a love. It's a love. It's a prohibit, prohibited Aveira, that's what it is. To shecht on Shabbos is what? That's also, in Aveira is also Dairaisa. You don't mean Dairaisa. Huh? It's an Isra Skila. You're dealing with a death penalty. And it's not just shechting. You're shechting, you're not giving him raw meat. You gotta cook the meat. You may have to carry the meat. You have to put on a fire. So you're dealing with Many of us malachas, or at least one which is an isuskila. So what does it make sense? Mitzad violating Shabbos, give him an avela, give him horse meat, give him chazer, give him trefa, cow meat, but it wasn't shechted, so you're not allowed to eat it. Nevela, trefa. It's only a love. Says the Shulchan Aruch, no, shecht. Why? Why? So the Ran says, the Shulchan Aruch Harav brings it in Shem Chavches. The Ran says a fascinating idea. Listen to this. When you eat on a vela, when are you doing the isur? How often? Every kazayas. Every kazayas that she that the person eats is an isur. It's a lav. But this person needs meat. So he's gonna eat a dish of meat. Or whatever he eats. Every kazayas the size of an olive, one lav, another lav, another lav, another lav. Shechting, how many times does he do an Avera? Once, he shechted. One. So here's the question. Here you have a very serious Avera, Isra Skila. I shouldn't, both are serious, but this is extra serious. Here you have a love. But the love you're going to be doing many, many times. The Skila you'll be doing only once. So here you have a big question. Does Kamos outweigh Echos? When you have a, minor, a small amount, it's very qualitative. But in quantity it's less. But the echus is strong. Or you have the echus is lower, 
But it's a lot of it which prevails. So the Ran says, and this is Allah in Shulchan Aruch, Shecht and don't give him an avail. Ribuya, Rabbi Yosef Engel puts it in Lekachtoi, Ribuya Kamus Machira Echos. The fact that you're doing many lavim is worse than one big Israskila. And therefore, Shech the animal. There's also another reason I should just bring, I think the Rajba brings it, that he may be repulsed by a Nevela. He's a Jew. He grew up, that's it's repulsive. You don't eat horse meat. He's a Jew. So that's a, that's a, but that's a separate reason. I'm going, I'm going now with the first reason. Imri noachoisiyot. Okay, listen to this. Avram Avinu tells Sarah, you have to lie, you have to say you're my sister. She says, why? You're beautiful. You're beautiful. I'm married to you. They know I'm married to you. They're going to think, I'm your husband, right? I am your husband. What are they going to do? They're going to kill me. Why are they going to kill me? The king, Farai, is not going to marry a woman who's an Ish. So you have to say you're my sister. We're not married. If we're not married, there's no Ashish. He'll take you. He doesn't have to kill me. One second. One second. Paroi is Azaf from a Galach. No Ashish, but murder, yeah? Killing a guy, no problem. Ashish, chas v'shalom. I don't live with married women. That's why I murder the husband. So, on human behavior, when it comes to Arayas, there's no questions. Eina Petrupas la Arayas. All logic and consistency gets buried in the ground. But what's the mahalach? The mahalach is, Avram put lumdis into Pare's cup. Avram said, Pare said, no, 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 no. If I kill Avram, how many Avedas did I do? One! Shmich is If I marry Sarah as an Ashish, every beer, every time we're together, We'll do one big one. Ritzicha. But at least it won't be every single one. From here you learn that you shecht for a on Shabbos. You don't say nachilenu nevela. You shecht for a on Shabbos. Why? That's what Pada is thinking. That's why Avram says, Imri nachaisiyot, you gotta lie. Because this Meshuganeh, this Rasha Berusha is going to decide. Murder Mela. We'll do one murder. It's over with. But now every bee is going to be Kasha V'yasha. Mahadim and Amahadim. Glad Kasha. The Nevela. It's constantly trade. Here's Shaykhatim. Okay, then he goes into a whole pilpul. It's not Mamash L'chayr. The same because over there it's both. Isure Misa. Eishasish is a problem of Sheva Mitzvah's Bnei Noyach. But here there was also another option. He gets into a whole big arichis in the letter. There could be a concept of Baal Shalai Kedarka, where it's still Mechur, it's still Asr, but it's not a gather of Misa. So there's different options, but he still would not want to do it. I want to apply this and give a little Amtoka to the Meiri. Our daughter-in-law was also a Lamdin. If Paray was a Lamdin, she says, listen, I know killing a baby is not a Gishmakazach. First of all, I'm not doing it. In Perikakoinus, maybe I'm Chayyim Bedine Shemayim. Bedine Yodam, I didn't do anything. Shloim is the guy who decided to kill. Number one. Number two, it's one sin. Done. If the baby is alive and I remarry, 
So every single kol is an isur. She can't leave without Yibum or Chalitza. So she jumps on the opportunity. She jumps on the opportunity. She tells Shlaima, do it. Everything is solved. There's really no need for Yibum. There's really no need for Chalitza. She doesn't have to raise the child. The best, max, apt, optimal scenario. She jumps on it without, med- without reflection. This is her dream. She's a free woman now. She's a free woman. And probably living in that house wasn't the most comfortable situation if this was the nature of the debate. And now she's free to roll. Shleim Melech says, This is the view of the Me'iri, Rabbi Shui ibn Shuab, the Yavin Shmuel, be it differently, a drop differently, all based on the two words in the Medrash, Shnei Yevamin Hoyu, and in the other Medrash, it was Kala Va Chamoisa. I just want to conclude... A word in this story that I once heard, a meshivin aladrush, at least on a homiletical, symbolic level, I think it can be applied and it's very relevant. The two mothers had a dispute who gets the child. Shleim HaMelech cuts the child, says let's cut the child. Someone once suggested, Shleim HaMelech didn't mean it literally, he meant it on a different level. He said, cut the child in two, one day you'll have the child, one day you'll have the child. One Shabbos you, one Shabbos you, one weekend you, one weekend you, one Yom Tif you, one Yom Tif you. We'll split the child, not physically, we'll split the child in terms of <laughs> home, identity, family, relationships, and so forth. What happens here is, the mother, the real mother, says, Don't split the child. A real mother knows that the most important thing for a child is unity, consistency, a clarity of who I am. Sometimes, even a real mother is confronted with a situation that's unavoidable, as is frequently a case of divorce, where with a real mother and a real father, and both want to be able to see the child, and that's of course legitimate. A child should still have a relationship with his or her mother and father, of course, even if they're divorced. But what we learn from here is something profound. Sometimes couples will fight so heavily with each other to the point that they force the child to split. They force the child to live with a split identity, to take sides. They use a child as a missile against the other one whether by feeding the child information, true or untrue. It could be true. But they forget that for her, it's a husband who she really doesn't care about. For him, it's a father. Or for her, it's a father. For him, it may be a wife who's exed, exed out many times in her mind. But for the child, it's his or her mother. So what Shleima HaMelech brings out through the story is the real mother will do whatever she can in the world. Never to split a child, to cause fragmentation, to cause a psychological and emotional split in the heart of a child. That a child doesn't feel there's a place that he or she belongs. He's being schlepped, schlepped like a tennis ball. What's the word? Like a, uh, like a ping pong ball. 
thrown here and thrown here. And in each place there is negative energy against the other one. And the child grows up and he or she struggles with the very core of their identity because there's no achtus in their life. There's no holistic unity in their life. Like the Vart is a beautiful author of Shimshin Rafal Hirsch, Amparshas Kiseitze. It says about a Ben Sayyid a child who's a rebel and the parents bring him to court. And the Gemara says such a story never happened, never will happen, that parents should want their child dead, as we see in this story as well. So it says, Einenu shaymeya bekaleinu, he doesn't listen to our voice. So the Gemara says the voice of the father and mother have to be identical, which is of course very difficult, and therefore it's very highly impractical that there should be a Ben Sayyid never happened, never will happen. So Rabbi Shimshin Rafal Hirsch says, Avart, The only way you could determine that a child is a Ben Sayyid is if the father and mother share the same voice. In other words, if there was a unified voice in the home, metaphorically speaking, and nonetheless the child rebelled, then you could say he may be a Ben Sayyid But if the voices are split in the home, if he has one message, she has another message. If they have no way of respecting each other, of getting along, of settling differences in a respectful way, even if there are legitimate disagreements, then don't call him a Ben Sayyid <laughs> This has nothing to do with him, with him being a Ben Sayyid Very often, a person, an educator, a parent, a teacher, a Rebbe, whoever it may be, instead of thinking about the benefit of the child, where will the child thrive to his or her maximum Ability, where he or her will have the most menuchas hanefesh, the most serenity, the most wholesomeness, the question becomes an issue of control. I need control over you, and I couldn't care less if that means that your life gets split up. The real mother is ready temporarily to say, I don't want my child being thrown back and forth. I'm going to have to prove that he's my child, but till that moment, I don't want him to be split. I don't want his identity to be split. Certainly in a situation where there is a marriage, there's no split. Parents could learn from here to always remember how never to allow a situation, Khalila, where a child has to split identity because of their own disputes. Because the fact is, a child in different homes, it's a very challenging situation. Sometimes it's an unavoidable tragedy. But it's a very serious situation. It's a very challenging situation. And one has to go from a serious nefesh to be able to avoid that children's identities should be split, that they should have to feel that there's no place they really belong. It's hard to transcribe on paper the sense of confidence and wholesomeness that a child who grows up in a home that's saturated with respect, communication, love, even if disagreements, I mean, Jewish husbands and wives by definition have to disagree. Ezer Kenegdai, like the Nitziv says. But nonetheless, there's disagreements, but there's an ethic of respect, of trust, of communication, of creating space for another. And Shleimah uh, Melech says, That's how you know who the mother is. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.